Okay, so welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from Journal Addiction. I'm Dr. Myra Molamatolo, and I'm here today with Dr. Catherine Paradis, Dr. Peter Butt, and Dr. Kevin Shield to talk about the article titled New Perspectives on How to Formulate Alcohol Guidelines. So welcome to the podcast. Um, could you briefly start by introducing yourselves to the listeners? My name is Catherine Paradzi. I'm a Director of Health Promotion and Scientific Alcohol Lead at the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. I was the co-chair of this project funded and mandated by Health Canada to update Canada's low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines. Hi, I'm Kevin Shield. I'm a scientist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Canada, and I was the lead mathematical modeler on the study. Yes, uh, Dr. Peter Butt. I'm a clinical associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan here in Saskatoon in Canada. And I served as co-chair on the guidance update. Thank you. So um, just to give listeners a bit of a context, so Canada has recently undertaken, as you've said, Catherine, a review of its low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines, which were originally published in 2011. And this process involved a scientific expert panel who had to make several methodological decisions and the current paper aimed to discuss four of these decisions and to contribute to the scientific advancement of low-risk drinking guidelines. So as a start, can you talk about what are low-risk drinking guidelines and why do we need such drinking guidelines? Generally speaking, uh, low-risk drinking guidelines are a public health initiative to raise the level of alcohol literacy in the general population and help them to make better informed decisions when it comes to their relationship with beverage alcohol. Mm -hmm. All too often, people learn how to drink by negative consequences. And this is a way of, of using the science, using the evidence to help guide people so that they can be better informed and not run into problems. So there's a primary prevention uh, principle behind this. So in the article, you mentioned that uh, low-risk drinking guidelines provide guidance for a number of um, uh, populations. So for example, vulnerable populations like pregnant women, um, also for certain uh, circumstances that are particularly hazardous, like driving, as well as acute consumption thresholds and um, to minimize short-term risk of injury. And finally, average consumption thresholds. So you mentioned that um, there is a general consensus about the first three types of advice, but there is some um, discussion and disagreement about what constitutes low-risk alcohol for average consumption. Um, I just wondered if you could talk a bit about why you think it's so difficult to reach a consensus on this? So that's a great question. The problem with reaching a consensus on this topic isn't necessarily the scientific evidence on it, but mm -hmm. it's a public opinion on this. Mm -hmm. So what we have is we have a substantial amount of scientific literature on the risk relationship between alcohol use and communicable diseases. So that would include things like tuberculosis and lower respiratory infections. We have a substantial amount of literature on alcohol use and non-communicable diseases. So alcohol is a carcinogen. It's a class one carcinogen, according to the International Agency for Research on Cancer. That's been well known and well documented for a very long time. Unfortunately, under half the population actually knows about that causal link. 
Um, but then you have other diseases as well. So you have ischemic heart disease, you have digestive diseases, of course, you have heart diseases um, that uh, are productive and some that are not. So you have ischemic heart disease where low dose non-binging amounts may have a productive effect. Um, but then you have things like alcohol cardiomyopathies, which alcohol doesn't have any protective effect there. Mm -hmm. You have blood pressure as well. So hypertension, alcohol doesn't have any protective effect with hypertension either. Uh, and then you have injuries as well. So you have alcohol being related to the most numerous causes of disease out of any risk factor out there. So this would include tobacco. Um, and this can cause confusion when people focus on heart health, in particular, the protective effects of alcohol on ischemic heart disease and ischemic stroke. Um, but as Catherine always says, uh, you can't direct alcohol to your heart. And this is where the controversy comes in hand, where people like to focus on the protective effects of alcohol, but they don't take a holistic look at alcohol. And that's what guidelines are for. They're not just to look at, is alcohol protective on heart health? It's, does alcohol impact your health overall? And when mm -hmm. we see that, we see that no, alcohol is not protective for your heart uh, overall. Uh, and so less is best. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really good point you made about how few people who consume alcohol are actually aware of the health consequences of alcohol. Um, and that relates to the next point I was going to ask about um, some of the decisions you made um, in coming up with these um, guidelines. So one of the decisions was around uh, presenting the low risk guidelines for total health versus core specific um, risks, so for example, for cancer or for heart disease, for example. Right. Uh, to circle back to the question with regards to the lack mm -hmm. of consensus, I, I, mm -hmm. I think it's also important to appreciate just how attached we are culturally to beverage alcohol. Mm -hmm. And as a result, historically, the risk thresholds for low risk drinking have tended to be higher for social, economic, and cultural reasons, rather than purely health reasons. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we did was to accept an international standard of one in 1000 level of risk, as opposed to one in 100 for the definition of low risk. And this mm -hmm. shifts, it's, it's a tenfold decrease. Or on the other hand, it, going from one in a thousand to one in a hundred is a tenfold increase with regards to negative health impacts for beverage alcohol because of that relationship, not because of mm -hmm. health. So we wanted to be much more transparent in terms of this relationship between alcohol and, and total health. It, just sorry to, to, to go back to your question about <laughs> where does the controversy come from or why is there a lack of agreement on low risk drinking guidelines in general? It, it, it also, because culturally, how do you define risk? What is risky for one person might be very different for another one. And mm -hmm. from one culture, one country to the other, some people find it okay to ride their bike without their helmets. Others wouldn't even touch their bike without a helmet. You know, people yeah. experience risk in different matters. And, and for the reasons that Peter just explained, also people being attached to alcohol, alcohol being a social marker of time out of good times. It's it that 
um, uh, comes and play with our understanding of what is risk. So I think that a lot of the debate around low risk drinking guidelines does not necessarily have to do with the evidence between alcohol mortality and morbidity, but more to do with how we understand and communicate risk in general. Um, thank you both. Those are really both really interesting points. And you're kind of reading ahead of the points that I want to come back to. You know, you mentioned that um, obviously alcohol has a lot of social um, social meaning and it's important in our culture, but also the differences in our risk perceptions. Um, so I'll circle back to those points, but I just wanted to discuss a bit more about um, the total health versus cause specific. Um, one of the decisions you've made was that you wanted to present it, uh, present the low risk guidelines for um, to to total health outcomes rather than cause specifics. Kevin will certainly can certainly tell you from an epidemiological uh, perspective why that is. I can also tell you that this decision has a bit of history behind it also. And in mm -hmm. 2011, when in Canada we came out with the first uh, uh, low risk drinking guidelines, um, we had a lot of uh, um, representatives from various health related organizations. I'm thinking the cancer one, for example, saying, "Well, these are too low for for for." These are these guidelines are too high when you look at cancer risk, and you had other people saying they're too low when you think about this type of disease. So we already knew from experience that we needed to move away from a disease specific debate, mm -hmm. and really our mandate was to look at the relationship between alcohol and health in general. Mm -hmm. And health is not a dummy variable. Do you have cancer? Yes or no. Do you have a ischemic heart disease? Yes or no. It's more general than that. So uh, based on our experience of the past 10 years, we wanted to look at health more generally. But mm -hmm. Kevin can then tell you more about um, other reasons for that decisions. Yeah, I would say that the controversy for the guidelines, I just want to emphasize this as well. Um, whether or not alcohol is a productive effect or not, is there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, mm -hmm. And part of it is due to what's called the commercial determinants of health. And when we look at surveys, we can see that people have the misconception that wine is healthy. And mm -hmm. if they drink red wine in particular, it's healthier than drinking beer and spirits. Mm -hmm. um, we know that this is not true. Um, mm -hmm. However, there's a lot of advertisements around antioxidants found in red mm -hmm. wine, especially Ristorabol. And so they say that you should drink red wine because it contains antioxidants, which will improve your health. So mm -hmm. red wine is almost recommended uh, in certain marketing campaigns. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at that, um, we have an opportunity with the guidelines to really focus the population and perform knowledge dissemination. So taking these results from these scientific uh, articles that are very complex and bringing it into the population realm mm -hmm. and communicating that one, those antioxidants are in very low concentrations. So for every thousand cancer cases caused by alcohol, you prevent one cancer from the antioxidant. So it's negligible. Mm -hmm. And then two, the main health effects from alcohol are mediated through ethanol consumption. Mm -hmm. So a glass of wine, a drink of beer, or a shot of spirits, they're all the same. They cause the same amount of harm to health. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's also important in terms of the guidelines to dispel all these uh, misconceptions and yeah. myths yeah, yeah. Uh, that the population has in terms of mm-hmm. how alcohol actually impacts health. Now, going back to a couple of other points that have been mentioned. So an interesting point was about risk perception. So I found this really interesting in the article where you were talking about um, risk perception and what is considered an acceptable risk. And you talked about how for involuntary risks, the risk threshold is much, um, much higher. So about one in one million lifetime mortality risk, whereas for voluntary risks, um, it's much lower. So about one in 1000 lifetime mortality risk, like Peter mentioned. Uh, but then you mentioned that for alcohol, there is an exception that it is even um, a higher risk Uh, of mortality that people are willing to accept, which is about one in 100 lifetime mortality. So is that correct to say that's one in 100, um, one in one death in 100 individuals who drink a certain amount of alcohol? That is seen as accept, that is seen as acceptable to people. So I wondered um, if you could talk a bit about why you think that as a society, we're willing to accept a much higher risk of um, death from alcohol as opposed to other risky voluntary activities. Yeah, I'll just, I think that the re, one of the reasons why society is willing to accept a higher level of risk of harm from alcohol use than any other social behaviors is because in our societies, alcohol represent good times. It is what we associate with um, with good times and with time out. It marks the difference between weekdays and weekends, work and leisure, um, uh, the routine and extraordinary event. So um, there are a lot of people who when they they hear that they should consider reducing their alcohol use, they hear that they should reduce their good times and 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 the the um the amount of social event that they can attend which of course it's mm-hmm. not that but this is how it is constructed in our alcogenic cultures mm-hmm. um, um especially one like we have in canada so i i think that's part of why uh policymakers and are are more reluctant to um to accept the normal acceptable level of risk um, for alcohol than for other uh, um, behaviors. So alcohol has been consumed since before recording his, recorded history. So it's really ingrained within our culture. And it has this perceived benefit of being consumed during success and cultural ritual um, circumstances like weddings. Uh, or if you get a promotion, you might break open a bottle of champagne. So it's really associated with positive uh, social situations. There's also a couple other things that we need to consider when we're looking at risk. We can look at the novelty of the risk. Again, it's not really a novel risk. Alcohol has been around for a long time. People know the risks. You also have the uncertainty about the scientific information about the risk. And this is where the commercial determinants of health come in. If industry can sow a lot of doubt that alcohol actually doesn't cause harm. Mm -hmm. People don't have that certainty that alcohol is harmful. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they don't have that certainty that yes, this one, two, three drinks a day is going to cause me harm in the long run. Mm -hmm. You also have the immediacy of the effect. So if I drink a drink now, is it going to be 
affecting me now or is it going to be in 10 years? Uh, and then also, I think there's a lack of knowledge about the control over your risk. So with alcohol, mm -hmm. we don't really realize it. But when we get into that habit of consuming a drink a day or two drink a day, true drinks a day, uh, your body starts cueing you for alcohol. So you start to crave it. Um, and so people have this notion, um, and you can even see it with people's opinions with people with alcohol use disorders. You can just cut down. You have control over this risk. Um, mm -hmm. And when it comes to alcohol, people think that they have more control than they actually do. And habit form, habits can form at two, even one drink a day. Um, and going back to the guidelines, so Peter, earlier you mentioned that in the guidelines you decided to use the 1 in 1,000 lifetime mortality risk over the 1 in 100 um, for the low-risk drinking guidelines. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit more about that decision. The 23 experts that, that constituted the, the panels that we had were unanimous in saying, look, we, we need to present this information transparently to the Canadian public. So rather than landing on a single number, the, um, the idea was that we would present this continuum of risk. And one of the things that we tasked Kevin with was not only uh, doing the, the modeling with regards to the relative risk curves, but also to identify the thresholds for one in 1,000 and one in 100 levels of risk. Mm -hmm. And the one in 1,000 came out at two standard drinks per week. One in 100 was six Canadian standard drinks per week. Now, a Canadian standard drink is 13.45 grams of ethanol. Mm -hmm. So one has to convert if you're dealing with an international audience between units in the UK or mm -hmm. standard drinks in countries that use an, uh, a metric measure. Nevertheless, that six standard drinks per week for one in 100 isn't significantly different, isn't all that much different, I should say, mm -hmm. than what the Australians uh, identified as low risk. But we felt as panel members that um, we should present the truth, we should be transparent, the consumer has a right to know, and therefore we used up to two standard drinks per week as low risk, three to six standard drinks per week as moderate risk, which now takes you up to the threshold of, of um, one in 100. And then for seven standard drinks and more, we really felt that um, that was increasingly high risk. So it would continue to rise exponentially from there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This was a way to, uh, that we thought would be best to communicate that continuum of risk, to help people situate themselves in terms of how much they're drinking, prompt reflection, and then make better informed decisions upon how much they, they might be inclined to reduce. And that mm -hmm. was our recommendation. Canadians should consider reducing the amount that they drink. Mm -hmm. We weren't giving them a specific number as a target. I, I just want to add to that. It was very important to us that, you know, these, these guidelines should not come out as rules or as, as, mm -hmm. as strict advice that people should follow. We wanted to provide people with information. And, and the first step for them is to um, uh, assess in which risk zone their drinking puts them. And if they're comfortable with that level of risk, well, they can, you know, continue to drink that amount. If they find it's a little bit too high or, or, or you know, then they can start reducing. What we thought was very interesting also with 
a continuum of risk instead of a strict numerical advice is that this way we can speak to all um, because previously when we had, for example, no more than 10 or 15 per week, there are people in society in our culture that drink much, much more than that. And for them, that number became impossible to attain. So then they completely disregarded the guidance. But this time, our message is there's a continuum of risk and any reduction is beneficial, especially mm -hmm. if you're in the higher levels of alcohol use. So this the way of presenting the guidance um, uh, speaks to all and, and, and provides information to all that can then make decisions um, based on their, on, on, on their unique needs and situations. Um, and I think that's a, an interesting contrast to, for example, the guidelines we have here in the UK, which is just one risk threshold, uh, which is currently 14 units of alcohol per week or less, is the recommended um, guideline. And I think sometimes due to perhaps lack of awareness, uh, public awareness of um, alcohol's health effects, it can be seen as if you don't drink 14 units or more, you're not at any risk, which is not necessarily true. Um, and that kind of brings me to the broader issues. So as I briefly mentioned in the UK, the guidelines are 14 units of alcohol or less per week, um, which is obviously UK units and Canadian units by the sounds of it are slightly different, but it corresponds to about six medium glasses of wine or six pints per week, uh, which seems to correspond to your moderate or high risk zones according to Canadian guidance. So what I'm thinking is, I, I wanted to know what you, what you think about these guidelines and whether you think there's a case for UK and other countries to potentially review their alcohol low risk drinking guidelines. So historically, guidelines have used a threshold, um, and that's been a way of thinking of risk, where they had a cut point of this is low risk. So if you drink below 14 units, you still will experience some sort of harm, um, but it is much diminished compared to those who drink above 14. And there's not much difference between if you consume 13 units or 15 units. So yeah. it's, it's a threshold that needs to be in place. Um, however, with other risk factors, uh, we found that a risk continuum is best. Uh, mm -hmm. And that allows people to situate their risks. And Catherine was the one that developed this idea and championed it. And she can talk a little bit more about it. But you can see the limitations of these old guidelines um, by using a threshold. And mm -hmm. there's much improvement to be made um, mm -hmm. by Catherine's method, which was risk zones or risk continuum. In terms of the numbers per se, um, um, you know, again, we need to make the conversions. So our um, moderate risk zone, the one in a hundred risk of, of, of harm, uh, was fixed at 600 drinks per week. Um, when the Australians did a similar exercise in, in 2020 and when the French did a similar exercise in 2019, they came to 7.4 standard drinks. Their, their guidance is 10, but mm -hmm. when you convert it in Canadian standard drink, it's 7.4. Mm -hmm. So there's not much difference between 6 and 7.4. And then mm -hmm. the 14 uh, UK units equivalent to 8.3 
Canadian mm-hmm. standard range. So again, there is a difference, but it's not that much. But what's interesting is to look at the trend. So in mm-hmm. 2016, when people did the exercise, they came to 8.3 in 2020 to 7.4. We arrive at six. So there's really a downward trend that we see happening uh, because um, our, our knowledge about that dose response relationship is more refined now than it was Mm -hmm. then our methodologies are getting better also at measuring that risk so it will be very interesting to see what will come next out of other countries who are now initiating that process of of Mm -hmm. updating or developing their low risk drinking guidelines Mm -hmm. Um, but but there's definitely a trend uh Mm -hmm. going on Mm -hmm. and i just want to add to catherine's point of why the risk zones are so useful. Mm -hmm. So when we were coming up with these thresholds, there was a really fierce debate between two factions within the guidelines, Mm -hmm. and that would be public health. Mm -hmm. Um, And public health was advocating to meet people where they're at. Mm -hmm. Um, That if we do overly strict guideline thresholds, that they would serve no one, that these goals would be seen as unrealistic, unachievable, and not do any good for the public health. Mm-hmm. However, we also had various medical doctors on our guideline mm-hmm. uh, panels as well. And what they were recommending was, I don't want to go into a room and give my patient advice that could potentially lead to harm. And mm-hmm. I don't feel comfortable giving them advice that leads to one in a hundred lifetime deaths. I would feel mm-hmm. much more comfortable with a threshold of one in a thousand So Mm -hmm. what we had there was a conflict that Mm -hmm. we had public health who wanted to meet people where they're at. And they, we had medical doctors who said, I want to give my patients the best advice possible. And Mm -hmm. so we came to a compromise and Catherine developed what's known as the risk zone approach, where we allow people to place themselves on a risk continuum. Mm-hmm. allow doctors to communicate the message of how to minimize your risk, but mm-hmm. also allow a population perspective as well, where less is best. Um, and that can also be used in medical practice. So mm-hmm. the risk zone approach really allows people to see themselves on that risk continuum mm-hmm. instead of dividing people into factions, low mm-hmm. risk or high risk. Mm-hmm. You you get to assess your own risk. And then if that risk is too high, you can reduce it by simply consuming less. Yeah, that's a really interesting compromise between public health and uh, the medical um, practice. And it kind of brings to my mind um, that sometimes it can be uh, a bit of a compromise between the overall um, public messaging and for people with a clinical um, problem with alcohol, so people with alcohol use disorders. And I wondered, um, Peter, if you could say a bit more about how the low-risk drinking guidelines could apply to uh, clinical populations. Well, certainly, uh, starting where people are at, it's a very sound clinical principle. You, you have to understand people's relationship with beverage alcohol and and why they drink at the levels that they do, whether it has for social effects or personal effects. But uh, fundamentally, you also need to be able to educate people with regards to a more reasonable goal, perhaps, from a health perspective. That's our job as clinicians. Mm -hmm. So the, the two come together quite nicely, actually. 
but the um, the knowledge mobilization really requires both to be covered, and that that becomes complicated. So in a clinical setting, yes, we start where people are at and talk about their attachment to alcohol, but then we we have the opportunity to delve further into what is their personal history with regards to conditions that might be uh, caused by or exacerbated by alcohol? What is their their family history? And thereby encourage people to reduce. Now, the ultimate goal may be different in terms of what's best for them from the, the epidemiological point of view, as opposed to what they're willing to take on, again, because of their perception of risk. Mm -hmm. So that somebody, uh, everyone should be encouraged to get down to that moderate zone or lower, which would be six standard drinks per week or less. Mm -hmm. simply because of the, the evidence. But if somebody were to have high risk, not necessarily a condition, but to high risk, they certainly should be in that, that, that three to six standard drink per week zone, that moderate zone or lower, seriously considering getting down into the, the low risk zone. If indeed they have an alcohol related condition, then of course, mm -hmm. two standard drinks per week or lower would be the recommendation. So it becomes mm -hmm. a, a process of engaging with people and helping them to make better informed decisions. Ultimately, what they decide to do in their own home is, is something that we have no control over. But hopefully they'll, mm -hmm. they'll be able to take this information and operationalize it uh, in a way that, that's mm -hmm. going to have a positive impact on their health and well-being. Given the different perception of risk, Somebody with a family history of breast cancer, for example, uh, may very well decide that they would rather not drink at all or definitely go into that, that lower risk zone, even though they themselves don't have breast cancer, as mm -hmm. opposed to somebody who has high blood pressure. That has a different sense of risk attached to it. So it might be a, a harder sell, so to speak, to get somebody even, even to a, a moderate level of risk uh, with high blood pressure, uh, mm -hmm. even though they might be able to reduce the, the load of medication they're taking and the associated cost. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. uh, people may not respond to that as a risk that is going to shift behavior at the same level as a concern with regards mm -hmm. to a family history of breast cancer. So this, this leads then into the complexity of how people perceive risk, how they're going to take action with regards to it. But it's very important, though, that the clinicians are able to use this risk zone approach and encourage people to reduce. Less is better across the board. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just want to say also that um, not only does the continuum of risk and this risk zone approach um, uh, allow to reconciliate public health objectives with more clinical objectives, mm -hmm. But it also serves a larger purpose, which is that in the Canadian culture, people tended to see drinking as something that can cause problem or not. Either you have problems with alcohol or you don't. Mm -hmm. Either you're a quote unquote alcoholic or you're not. And people tend to disregard what's in between. And mm -hmm. that's something also this this was not our our first time around the block, you know, we had done this in 2011. And many people at the time believe we learned that over the years that um, the trend, you know, the, the, um, the low risk limit aimed to prevent you from developing an alcohol use disorder, period, mm -hmm. because they're unaware of all the other risks that, that, mm -hmm. that 
alcohol can cause. So this continuum of risk also allows people to see that there's a whole gray zone or or, no, or green that moves to yellow and, and, and red zone of risk, uh, that there are other conditions, um, um, uh, other um, type of, of harm that you can suffer from alcohol use that um, do not... Uh, bring you even close to an alcohol use disorder, but that are nonetheless very real in terms of harms. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think you said that, um, that people are mostly aware of the risk of alcohol use disorders, but not other health effects of alcohol. Um, so this guidance is, it seems to be about giving people the necessary information that they can place themselves on those risk zones and make an informed decision. It's an individual decision, but at least they can have and the necessary information to make that decision. That was the whole purpose of the project, is to allow people to make informed decisions about their alcohol mm-hmm. use, if, mm-hmm. and, and also to allow them to um, uh, be, be more curious about that and have that discussion with a health professional if need be. But um, mm-hmm. it's all about empowering people to make mm-hmm. uh, decisions that are right for them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And just to kind of um, finish off, what has been the reaction to the new low risk drinking guidelines from the public and the broader scientific community? I'm especially thinking about the note about the, the section on how no amount of alcohol is safe, which is not a widely known uh, fact in general public knowledge. So I just wondered um, what, what has the response been like? Um, the response has been incredibly um, positive, I, I, mm-hmm. I would say, for sure that we have critiques, for sure. But when we do a content analysis of the media coverage, uh, the majority of the coverage was uh, positive and favorable to the guidance. People are open to this idea that alcohol um, um, uh can be harmful. Um, People want to learn more about the fact that alcohol uh, causes cancer. Within the population, the uh, preliminary survey data that we have indicate that over half of the Canadian population who who is aware of this new guidance tend to use it to reduce their alcohol, to change their alcohol behaviors and reduce it. And and, and, um, it's also about half of health professionals who've told us that they find that this information will be extremely useful um, for them to to talk about alcohol with their patients. And But what we hear time and time again, these are are, are anecdotes, but I mean... we get almost stopped in the street now to be talking about this. But people, it, it's fascinating and people are really saying, you know what, I'm still drinking. I'm not going to quit drinking, you know, but you made me think about it. And, you know, I drink less than I used to. And it, it seems to be this people are drinking less and less is what is being reported to us. A certain curiosity also toward non-alcoholic beverage, a certain uh, uh, sober curiosity also to uh, try what it feels like not to drink, even if it's just for one night or, or, or a week, you know, or it might be longer, but this people are more, more open to the idea. And I think that the guidance has been very well received and has helped to change 
you know, we are in an era where we always talk about stigma. The the funny thing with alcohol is that um, our relationship to stigma is opposite. Traditionally, it's people who do not drink that have been stigmatized, who've been pressured. Why not? Why don't you have a drink? And suddenly, since the guidance came out, we're hearing more and more people thanking us and saying, you know what? Finally, I can decline a drink or say I'm not interested and not being judged anymore. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, uh, really a sort of unintended consequence of this guidance that really is music to our ears. Mm-hmm. And I just want to add the reception from the research community has been great. Um, I would like in the development of the risk zones, the risk curves, allowing people to situate themselves to much like a lot of other scientific discoveries. So the people who worked on the UK guidance um, have contacted us and said, that's great. We wanted to do that ourselves. That was something that we pushed, um, but unfortunately public health wanted a cut point. And Mm. so what's happened was Canada was allowed to be the first to provide risk zone guidance. But it Mm -hmm. seems like a lot of other public health agencies and a lot of people who have been involved in the development of these guidelines really are taking to the utility of that risk zones. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we'll see that picked up in a lot more guidelines in the future as well. And the vast majority of the negative response has been industry generated uh, with regards to Agents within the media, for instance, that are spouting misinformation, that are not um, really understanding what, or perhaps are deliberately contorting what we wrote. Um, mm-hmm. s- similar to, to the tobacco industry, they use um, academics masquerading as uh, such, but rather are actually industry agents. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunate that that industry has taken that stance because mm-hmm. some aspects of the industry, such as craft brewers and, and other um, players, have chosen to use it as an opportunity to promote low alcohol content beverages. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is a this is wonderful when we see that in terms of options in the hospitality industry that are being presented to consumers. Mm-hmm. It's not an abstinence-based approach. It's really simply encouraging people to consume less. From a general perspective, we hope that this paper will contribute to uh, a scientific debate, to advancement in this field. When we started this project as a co-chair, it definitely um I was very grateful that we could benefit from the work of others who had done so before us, the UK, Mm -hmm. France, Australia. Mm -hmm. And this was a message I kept repeating to the group. Let's leave a legacy also for others that follow us, that they can build on our work. So, you know, in science, there's no truth with a capital T. You know, we're not doing religion here. We're doing Mm -hmm. science. And we know Mm -hmm. that you know, in five, 10 years, you know, we'll need to to update this again. But we really hope that this paper will contribute to uh, inform, intelligent, respectful debate about the best way to provide information to the population so that they can make informed decisions about their alcohol use. Um, Well, thank you all so much. Those are all my questions. And it was really great to speak to all of you. And thank you so much for joining for an insightful discussion. Mm